Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we just, oh, we just thank you so much for these moments that we get to spend together. It is, it's just the favorite part of my week. Um, to be with your people surrounding your throne, so to speak, that we're here on earth, but just thinking that one day we will no longer live by faith, but we will live by sight. And with a group much, much larger than this from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation, we will be gathered around your throne Worshiping you and, and sin and pain and hurt and betrayal, all those things, they, they will be gone forever. And when we see you, we will be like you. And I just, with all my heart, Lord, I just thank you for that promise that that's where we're going and that you are most certainly going to bring us to that end for those who have simply trusted in you. So thank you uh, for this morning. Thank you for this opportunity just to sing and to worship, to get into your word. Just continue to speak to our hearts, God, how, how desperately we need you. And you truly are the only one, the only one who can satisfy our souls. Thank you so much. It is in Christ's name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. You can have a seat. That was just beautiful this morning, guys. Thank you for serving us well and helping us to worship Jesus. If you've got your Bibles, grab them. Go to uh, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. You may not know this, but many scholars and men of God throughout history consider this the greatest paragraph ever written. I'm not kidding. It is absolutely wonderful. It is the heart of the gospel and all that we celebrate. It's all that we, we sing about. Uh, it is just absolutely beautiful. And so let me read it and then we will spend our time uh, trying to understand it together and looking at some of the implications. Romans chapter 3 and verse 21, it says, But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Would you just pray with me one more time? Uh, again, Lord, we look to you right now and we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and that you would open the eyes of our heart that we might see wonderful things from your word. And it is in Christ's name that we pray.
Amen. Um, many of you have heard me tell this story before, um, so I will tell it rather quickly. But about nine and a half years ago, I used to do roofing, have a roofing business, and I fell off a roof and I broke my neck. Um, and I got up from falling on the ground, and we were working not very far from where we were living at the time, and I had the guy that was working with me take me home, and when you fall off a roof, uh, I, unfortunately that was not the first time that I had fallen, but it was the first and only time I've broken my neck, but I wasn't sure about that at the time. I went home, and um, <laughs> I actually laid on the couch, and I was hurting, but I wasn't sure exactly what was hurting, because your adrenaline is really kind of pumping, and I actually told my wife to push on my back, because I thought maybe that would help, and she didn't do that, thankfully. Um, but anyway, I ended up going to the hospital, and, and uh, at the one hospital, they took a CAT scan, and their words were, uh, something's not right, but we don't know if you have to have surgery or not. And so we're going to ship you off to a neurosurgeon, and we're going to let them decide if you have to have surgery or not. And so went up to Altman, and there, uh, after they did some more scans, uh, a well-known um, uh, neurosurgeon uh, and spinal expert came in, and the first thing he said to me, and I'll never forget, I was laying there on my bed, and he looks down kind of at me, and he's like, what have they told you? And I said, well, it's, you know, they said there's a little something wrong, and that I might have to have surgery, you know, because I was still trying to be optimistic at this point, kind of hoping for the best. And the first words out of his mouth, as he begins to shake his head, he says, most people with this break are quadriplegic. The very first thing he said to me. And, um, and, he goes, and then he goes, it's a really big deal. It's a really big deal. And so at that moment, he had my attention. Amen? Like he, 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 he had my attention because he had finally rightly diagnosed what the real issue was. And it was a really big deal. And up until this point in the book of Romans, what, what Paul did very briefly at the beginning of chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, is he says that there is th this power of the gospel, and, and in it a righteousness from God is revealed. But then he goes on from chapter 1, 18, to what, where we fin ended up last week, uh, chapter 3, verse 20, and he gives a correct diagnosis. And it's a really big deal. It's not good. It's that there is none righteous, no, not one. And as we even read about here today, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And, that, and, it's, and so in giving this right diagnosis, Paul now sets us up for the cure. So in the same way, when I, when I found out what, needed, or what was actually wrong with my neck, the answer became really clear real quick. It wasn't like, well, maybe you're going to have to have surgery. You absolutely have to have surgery, and you have to have it soon. You've got to have it now. And so the diagnosis clarified the cure. And so what Paul does here now this morning, again, in this, this beautiful paragraph, these beautiful few sentences, is he gives the cure to the diagnosis of our sin and that there is none righteous, no, not one. And what the theme of this paragraph is, is about this righteousness. It's about this righteousness. And, and I, you know, I tried to, I don't know, with, with, I, I mean, I'm a little bit nervous every week, if I'm really honest, when I, when I get up here to speak, but especially when you come to places in God's word like this where, you know, men of God throughout history have called this, you know, the greatest paragraph ever written. I just, I, I'm always just like, Eric, just make it clear. Just try to make it clear. Just try to make it clear. And so, um, I, uh, I've got nine points this morning, okay? Um, and you're like, that's not really clear. Well, but it's just, I, I just, I just got to stick to my points. 
and try to, and try to make it clear, but it's all about this righteousness. These, these, these nine points that I want to bring out, and again, I'm not, they're not just individual points that just stand alone. Hopefully I can show you how they're woven together in the flow of thought of what Paul is trying to communicate here. But it's all about this righteousness, this righteousness that we so desperately need. Again, guys, God is holy and we are not. And the problem isn't just that we lack purpose or that we lack self-esteem. It's that we lack holiness. It's that we lack righteousness in the presence of a holy God who we have offended by our sin. And, not, and, and, and it's not just offense because it's not just an offense because God is kind of kind of kind of moody and kind of kind of temperamental. But our sin is cosmic treason. And it is worthy of punishment. And we need a righteousness that is not our own to be accepted into his presence. And it is this righteousness that I want to talk about this morning and describe it to you. And hopefully you'll see that in the end it all comes back to what Jesus has done for us. But first of all, this righteousness is apart from the law. The right, it is a righteousness that is apart from the law. And this is good news because we cannot keep the law. Go back just to verses 19 and 20, which we looked at briefly last week, which come right before, of course, verse 21, which I just read. It says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And then he says, says verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The law, here's what you have to understand about the law, and by by the law we're talking about all of it, but primarily the uh, the Pentateuch, the Ten Commandments, uh, I'm sorry, the the, uh, Decalogue, the Ten Commandments written on stone tablets. The law revealed, it revealed God's righteousness. It revealed that we should have no other gods before him. It revealed that we should love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that the essence of our sin is that we've all loved other things more, and therefore we've broken his law uh, both inwardly in our hearts but also our actions um, carrying out the reality of our hearts that we have loved other things more than him. The law is holy and righteous and good. It reveals God's righteous standard, but it does not give us a righteousness. It only reveals it. And that's where Paul said that by, in verse 20, that by works of the law, no human being will be justified, since through the law only comes a knowledge of sin. Okay? Paul writes about this extensively in his gospel, that God's laws are holy and righteous and just, because God is holy, righteous, and just. The law is given to reveal his character, yet the law in and of itself cannot save us, because our problem runs much deeper than what we think. It runs all the way down to the core of who we are. And in Paul's writings, (coughs) excuse me, in another place, in Galatians chapter 3, he compares the law um, to what today we would look at as possibly like a school teacher. Um, It's it's a different word. Paul uses the word, or the English translates translates it as a guardian. Um, The word is pedagogue. It was like a live-in nanny slash tutor teacher. That was part of the Greek and Roman culture back in that day. Here's what Galatians 3 uh, says. It says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian. That's the word. It's the idea of a teacher or literally a pedagogue. So then, the law was our guardian or teacher until Christ came 
in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian or teacher. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So here's kind of the idea of the law and the role that it plays and how it was necessary, yet it's not enough to save us. Did anybody have a teacher growing up in school that just, she'd just look at you and she'd just kind of make you sit up a little straighter? Anybody? I have one in particular. I never had her in a class, but she was the lunch lady. And man, I want to tell you what, if there's one thing that she did not put up with, because well, let me give a little backstory. So at, we would eat lunch back in the day, okay? And then we would have to sit there. We would all get done, we would get done eating our lunch. And then we'd have to sit there for a while until we'd be dismissed or go to recess or whatever. And inevitably, what would happen is that kids would start playing with the salt and pepper shakers. Now, I don't know if you remember these salt and pepper. They were like a waffle design, and so we would, we would always like roll them around. Anyway, weird little detail. But anyway, she did not put up with playing, messing with the salt and pepper shakers. And so she would come around and just do not mess with those, with those salt and pepper shakers. But to the place where... A little bit later on in life, and she was actually a very nice lady. She's passed away now a couple, a couple years ago. But, um, but to the place where when I was, when I was young, I did, not want to, I did not want to fall under her discipline. But even when I would like see her outside of school, and I'd see her, I would just like, <laughs> I'm not messing with the salt and pepper shakers. I'm, I'm innocent, not, not messing with them. Um, but, but, but it would, it would have that effect on me, okay? And the law is good, but what, part of what Paul is saying is here is now that a righteousness apart from the law has been revealed, and we're not meant to live in fear of the pedagogue, of the, of the teacher, of the guardian anymore, because there's a new righteousness, a new type of righteousness that is ours in Christ Jesus. And this idea of the freedom that we experience as we learn to live not under the fear of the lunch lady, but the freedom that is found in this righteousness that's found in Christ is what Paul is going to continue to unravel here. So first of all, I just want to say that the, it is a righteousness that is apart from the law. Secondly, it is a righteousness that is by faith. And by faith alone. Now this is massively important. I'm actually not going to spend a ton of time on it today because in Paul's flow of thought, the rest of chapter 3 rolling into chapter 4, this is what he's going to unpack is the necessity of this righteousness being by faith, and here's the key, alone. Nothing else we can add to it. Only by receiving it, okay? And Paul is going to unpack that for us over the next couple weeks as we walk through the rest of chapter 3 and the rest of chapter 4. What I would want to say here, though, is I just want to show you where it is. He says, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, it is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now, faith and believe, they're the same form, they're a different form of the same word. Faith is the noun form, believe is the verb. So he's saying it's through faith and it's for all who believe. For all who believe, he says down in verse 25, it was a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And so you see this link between faith and receiving. 
Okay, and then the very last verse of this passage, verse 26, that God might be just in the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This righteousness comes only by faith. And here's the key thing I want you to get, although we're not going to spend much time of it on to this morning, although it's massively important, is that this idea of faith, it's simply relying upon another. The reason why it's a righteousness that comes, that comes by faith is because the essence of faith is that it is the exact opposite of trusting in ourselves. It's, it's a looking away from self to another. And you see, this was the point of the law. The whole point of the law was to teach us that we could not keep the law. We need something deeper to change us. And it is this righteousness that is provided in Christ that to, to be received by faith that we could live in freedom. And the whole point of the law is to teach us that we can't keep the law, and so we look away from self and be ready to receive a Savior. But in humanity's sinfulness, we take that which is good, the law, and we twisted it, and we perverted it into some sort of set of rules that we thought we could keep. We knew we couldn't keep them, but we lied about keeping them. We thought that if we were just really good and acted really good and didn't let other people see when we weren't really keeping the law, that that would be the same as keeping the law. It's not the same. God sees everything. God sees not only our actions and when we're not faithful to keep his commands, but he also sees the intention of our heart and the things that we desire above him. And so this righteousness is apart from the law, and it is a righteousness that is by faith, that looks away. And then verse 22, very famous verse, maybe you memorized this growing up in Sunday school or VBS or whatever. He says, for there is no distinction... And by distinction here, he means there's Jews, Gentiles, this is what he's been arguing up to this point in the letter. Everybody is under sin. Everybody is rightly under the wrath of God because our sin deserves punishment. He's saying there's no distinction for all have sinned. When he says all, there are all types of people, Jews, Gentiles, the moralists, the pagan, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. All are sinful and fall short of the glory of God. And this idea of falling short here, um, I, I don't think it's the greatest English translation, although most all the English translations kind of use it because this is what the King James used and it just kind of got um, translated that way down through the years. But because fall short to me, it, it has this idea or this connotation of like, right, here's the finish line and I'm about to win, but then I just stumble just before I cross the finish line. That, that's not the idea at all. It, the, the idea here is not that we were close and just didn't quite make it. The idea is that if you're going to use that imagery of running a race, isn't that just that we stumbled right before the finish line? It's that we were disqualified from the starting block. It's that we, 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 never, we never even got in, got in the race. There's nothing we can do. We, we can jump in and, and say that we're running it, but we're disqualified because of our sin. That's what it means to fall short. There's a guy named Bishop Hanley Mole who, who um, puts it very beautifully. He says, the harlot, the liar, the murderer, all fall, all fall short of God's glory. But so do you. Perhaps they stand at the bottom of a mine and you on the crest of the Alps. But you are as little able to touch the stars as they. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then we come to this all-important word here um, that is going to be a word that uh, Paul has just touched on briefly so far in the letter, but it is going to become very central to all the rest of the letter, and so I want to sit on this one for just a little bit. 
And my third point is that this righteousness that we so desperately need and that is the good news that we can receive through Christ, it is a righteousness that is declared and credited. It is a righteousness that is declared and credited. Now hang with me here, and I want to press into this and explain what I mean. I'm getting this from the word justified at the beginning of verse 24. Again, Paul says there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Here's the, the, the idea of justification. There's two parts to it, okay? The first one is necessary, um, but there's more to it than this. And that is, the first part of justification is that we are pardoned. We are forgiven, okay? Forgiveness is a part of justification, but justification and forgiveness are not synonymous. They are not the same thing. To be pardoned or to be forgiven uh, is to acknowledge that you've done something wrong and then to have it wiped out, but that is not the same as being declared righteous. And this is really, really important theologically, guys, and we've, we've got to get this and just, just hang with me here, okay? Um, is that, yes, we are forgiven, yes, our sins are pardoned, but we are also declared or credited a righteousness that is not ours, now, I'm emphasizing declared and credited here because this is even different than actually being made righteous. It is that we are declared righteous. And you've got to get this because it messes up justification, sanctification, and glorification, and it will mess up your walk with Christ if you do not understand that this righteousness is something that is declared over us because of what Christ has done. Now, let me... Let me try to explain it some more. Where you'll see this at, and you'll see this word justified or justifies in a lot more places in the book of Romans, but probably one of the clearest places that kind of makes this point and to maybe help us understand what justification means and why, why I'm emphasizing that it's declared and credited um, is, that, is to think of it in terms of its opposite, okay? So the opposite of justification is condemnation, Listen to Romans chapter 8, verse 33 and 34. There Paul says, he says, Who shall bring any charge, so a charge of, that we're guilty, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It, listen, it is God who justifies who is to condemn. Okay? Now here's the point, is that condemnation is not exactly synonymous with punishment. To be punished is to be, is to be punished. But condemnation says, yes, you are worthy of that punishment. You deserve the punishment. Okay? It declares that you, condemnation declares that you are worthy of the punishment. What justification says is it declares that we are no longer worthy of the punishment. Are you with me? It is a declaration over our life, and it is a righteousness that is credited to us. Now, I don't want to jump ahead because this is where we're going to go over the next several weeks, but if you look ahead very quickly at chapter 4, uh, in the ESV version, um, it uses the word counted instead of credited, but it's the same idea, and that word counted or credited, or if you've got a King James, or I believe even a New King James, it might, it might use the old school word reckoned, reckoned, that word appears 10 times in chapter 4. And this is what Paul's going to go on to talk about, about how this righteousness is credited to us, or reckoned to us, or counted to us, although it is not our own. 
Another theological word you need to throw out here and that we need, we need to understand that goes along with this. When I say credited, another way to say it is that God, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. Okay? Important theological word. It's not in the text, but this is the idea behind the word justification, is that his righteousness is imputed to us. Now, hang with me, and let me show you how this works. Did Christ actually sin? Yes or no? No. He did not actually sin. And yet, the Bible says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. How does that work? It works because God imputed our right, our, our sin to Christ on the cross. Do you understand? Christ did not actually sin, but God, in his mercy, imputed our sin to Christ. In the same way, we are not actually righteous, but God imputes Christ's righteousness to us. And he declares that we are righteous. He credits the righteousness of Christ to us. The other, the, the phrase that many times theologians will use, and I agree with it wholeheartedly, although it's not in the Bible, but this is the idea, is they will call this an alien imputed righteousness. Now don't think like, you know, aliens, like sci-fi. A- alien, just meaning, some of you are really disappointed, like, we're going to talk about aliens. No, that's not it. Um, the idea of alien here is that it's not from ourself. Nowhere does this righteous, righteousness arise within us. And God somehow makes it better. It is outside of us. It is apart from us. Sin was alien to Christ. And yet God imputed this alien unrighteousness to Christ on the cross. In the same way, righteousness is alien to us. Yet God imputes this righteousness that we did not have to us because because of Christ. Some of the reasons why why this matters... And why you need to understand the full weight of not only being forgiven and having our sins pardoned, but also being declared righteous. As one commentator put it this way, and this is very good. He says, the voice that says forgiveness will say, you may go. You have been let off the penalty that your sin deserves. But the voice which says justification will say, you may come. You are welcome to all my love and to my presence. C.H. Hodge um, tries to clarify the difference in this way. He says, to condemn is not merely to punish, but to declare the accused guilty or worthy of punishment, which is what I was just saying. And justification is not merely to remit that punishment, but to declare that punishment cannot be justly inflicted. Do you understand this? This is so important. Is that, and, and it's an amazing thing, and you got to hang with me because you're like, well, how, how can this be? That's the question we should be asking. How can this be that God would declare us righteous when we're not actually righteous? Paul's going to answer that. We're going to get there. He's going to answer that question in the, rest, in the rest of this passage. But the thing I want you to get here in this justification, and and again, let me read the last part of that C.H. Hodge quote. He says, but to declare that punishment cannot be justly inflicted on us because it was inflicted on Christ. So many Christians 
live like they've only been pardoned and forgiven. And it's like God had the stick of his wrath and he was going to punish us because we know that we're, we're guilty. And then he forgives us and he takes the stick and he puts it behind his back. But we still know the stick's there. And so we kind of live in this, I'm not sure, does he actually love me? Brothers and sisters, the stick of God's wrath or of his punishment was broken on the back of Christ. Do you understand? The fact that he justifies us, declares us righteous. If you understand this, it does away with any hesitancy that we might have in our hearts on our part to come freely to him and to find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. One more word picture to try to <coughs> um, maybe help explain a little bit of this idea of an alien imputed righteousness that is declared over our lives for the sake of Christ. All the way back in the garden when Adam and Eve first sin, and then he, God states some punishment to Adam, to Eve, and to the serpent, but he also gives a promise that one day a seed of a woman who is Christ is going to come, he's going to crush the serpent's head. And then after that, there's this little verse, because at this point now Adam and Eve have sinned, and they are naked, and they are ashamed. And here's what Genesis 3.21 says, it's very it's, it's there, but it's easy to skip over. It says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. Now, we'll see this imagery teased out in more detail as you go through the Old Testament, the idea of sacrifices and different things. But here in the garden, because of their sin, God killed an animal. We're not told what it was. I tend to think it was probably a lamb, but we don't know for sure. And he killed an animal, and he made for them garments of skins. These garments that clothed the shame and the guilt of their nakedness, these garments were alien to them. They were not theirs. They were something that was provided by another, by God himself. And he clothed them in it so that they could live, though they were still unrighteous, they were clothed in his righteousness, in an acceptable righteousness. Are you with me? This is the declaration of justification, that it arises from nothing within ourselves. It is all from Christ. And just like it was God's idea to kill an animal, create skins for them, it was ultimately God's idea. And again, he didn't make this up later on. Christ has always been the answer but to clothe us ultimately in the righteousness of Christ. So this is a righteousness, and we'll talk more about this in weeks to come, but that is declared and it is credited to us. And it is alien, but it is imputed to us. Um, fourthly, this is a righteousness that is rooted in grace. This goes right along with what, with what I've been saying, but it is a righteousness that is rooted in grace, all of sin fall short of the glory of God and are justified. And again, this passage is so rich. It's like we just got to go like a word at a time. <laughs> but he says, and are justified, listen, by his grace as a gift. Now, th this is the way the ESV says it. It says, by his grace as a gift. Other English translations say, um, justified freely by his grace. The reason that is, is because the word for 
um, gift here. Uh, it's actually, the better translation is probably freely by his grace because it's, it's um, the adverb, it's a descriptive word where, where gift is a noun, but uh, if you're into this type of stuff, I guess, um, <laughs> it's kind of nerdy, but, but it's important, is um, the word uh, freely is Dorian, and the word for gift, a noun, is Doria, okay? And so that's where they get the idea of gift. It's very close. So when you give somebody a gift, how do you give it? It's, it's freely, right? Because otherwise it's a wage or something that they're, that they're earning in return. But the point here is that this justification, where does it come from? <laughs> Guys, it is rooted totally in his free sovereign grace. That's it. It is rooted in the overflow of who he is. That God's character is revealed in this justification and that he did not have to do it. It is the overflow of his gracious heart to us and it is free. He freely gives it. Let me press this a little bit more. This idea of, of the free grace of God. Um, again, this Greek word, Dorian, there's, there's another place. And listen to this verse because this is helpful in helping us get the idea. In John 15, 25, Jesus is characterizing those who hate him. And he says, they hated me, listen, without reason. And that little phrase, without reason, that's the word Dorian, which I'm saying also uh, can be translated freely. So, He's saying, they hated me freely, or they hated me without reason, speaking of his enemies. And in the same way here, if you, if you take that idea and put it here, like this, this, this grace that is, that is free, it's, it's without reason. The point is, there's no reason in us. There is no reason in us why God would do this for us, you understand? It is the overflow of his free sovereign grace. Now, you've heard me say this before. I know I get on my little soapbox about this, but this is why this matters, and this is why this statement that I'm about to make is heresy. When people like Todd White, who did a big revival service in our area last year, and who I think is coming again this year, I don't really know, but that's what somebody told me. When he says things like, I was worth so much, that God bankrupted heaven just to get me because I'm so valuable. That is the exact opposite of what this is saying. Do you understand? That completely flips grace on its head. God sent Jesus to die, and we'll roll into this in just a second. Hang with me with this idea of propitiation by his blood not because we were intrinsically worth so much because that is what our sin cost. And, and I, it, let me just sit here for a second because you're like, why is he ranting about that? Okay, listen. <laughs> if, you, if we want to go on to maturity, if we want to stop being infants and babes in Christ, that think that it's all about us and what God can give us and, that he's, and although we don't say this, I'm telling you, we think it and we live it. And I hear it in conversations with people. I've heard it at times in conversations even with myself and the way that I talk is that we think that God owes us something. We think that he's a genie in a bottle. And if we just rub him in the right religious way, I, we go to church, we do our devotions, we act like good little Christian boys and girls, that he somehow owes us something. He owes us nothing. 
all of life is his free, sovereign grace. As we sang earlier, it is his breath in our lungs. And so, yes, in response to his free, sovereign grace and making us his children, do we sing? Absolutely we sing. But he owes us nothing. There was no, there was no reason. There was no reason that God saved Eric Miller. None. There was no reason that he saved you, and yet he calls us to him. And he says to us, you are my child. I love you. And if we, brothers and sisters, if we want to go on to maturity, we got to get ourselves out of the center of our theology. That's the problem. Is everything is man-centered. And, and it keeps us from truly understanding grace and living in the freedom that he came to provide. And that's the next point here, is this is also a righteousness that sets us free. And again, it's just like phrase by phrase. It says we are justified freely by his grace, or his grace is a gift. And then he says this, through the redemption, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is a very, uh, again, a very specific word. It is, it is, it is a word that is taken from uh, the slave market in ancient times, where again, back in this day, um, over half the world, uh, roughly the population of roughly half the world were, was, were slaves. And people would be bought and sold, and I'm not, again, getting it, like, obviously that's, that's not good, right? But the, but the point is here is that this word was used of literally being able to buy someone back and set them free, this word for redemption, in verse, in verse 24, is that he justifies us, that's the language of a courtroom, it's legal language, and he does this freely by his grace, and it is he, and, and so really here, there, I think there's a little bit of a play on words, not, not on words so much, but play on ideas, is that Paul is saying he justifies us freely by his grace, and it is the, his free grace that sets us free. Through this redemption that is in Christ Jesus. As we look away from ourselves, this justification that sets us free. What does this justification set us free from, though? Why, and in what sense are we set free? In this sense, we are set free. We are redeemed from the penalty of sin. Listen, one day when we die or Jesus comes back, we will in that day in glory, in glorification, we will be set free from the very presence of sin. Between now and then, we still live with the presence of sin, but we can know for certain, as certainly as Christ died and was raised from the dead, we can know for certain that we have been set free from the penalty of sin because Jesus took it. And here's, here's the important idea that we're going to look at, and Paul's going to unpack this when we get to end of chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, is that the more we understand our justification, the more we understand that we have been set free from the penalty of sin, the more we will live in freedom from the power of sin. Very important. When we find ourselves in bondage, in practical bondage, to daily sin, which we all still struggle with. Because remember, we are both simultaneously unrighteous and righteous. We are still sinners, but we are clothed. It is imputed to us in the righteousness of Christ. But here's the great kind of key of, of, of the kingdom, if you will, is that the more we rejoice in and delight in 
the, our justification, that we're set free from the penalty of sin, the more we will live in practical freedom from the power of sin. But I want to tell you, we flip this all the time. We flip it all the time. We try to get our justification to rest upon our performance. And it's exhausting, and it doesn't work. It never has. It never will. Yeah, and I hope this is making sense because this is some rich, deep theological waters, but I'm telling you there could be nothing more practical in its implications for, for our daily lives is that this is a righteousness that sets us free. Paul says in Colossians, he says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities. Those are, that's Satan and his demons. Satan, and one of his names is accuser, the accuser of the brethren. It says he disarmed the rulers and authorities, having put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Why do we live sometimes in practical defeat? Because the devil stands and he accuses us. And we do not believe the truth that though I am a sinner, and yes, I might have sinned, I am justified in Christ. And we can go forward in no condemnation and in the joy that our justification brings. When we do not believe the lie of the devil, but believe what God's word says is true about us. Now, these next couple, we got we to gotta roll here. I knew nine points was going to be a stretch. But everybody good? You need to stand up, touch your toes, move a little bit, because we're just, we're just getting started. Um, Let me rattle off a couple of them here because they all go together. Point six, seven, and eight um, is this righteousness. It is a righteousness that is acceptable. It is a righteousness that was costly. And it is a righteousness that is righteous. (laughs) Or a righteousness that is just, you might say. It is a righteousness that is acceptable, a righteousness that was costly, and it is a righteousness that is righteous or just. Where am I getting this? Okay, continue on here in the passage. He says, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward, and another very important theological word, Bible word, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And then he goes on and says, and he says it twice, and we'll get there. He says, this was to show God's righteousness. First, that this is a righteousness that is acceptable. This word for propitiation, God, Paul has used a legal term, the term justification, the word declared free and innocent. He's used a word from the slave market that he has bought us back and set us free from uh, the guilt and from the condemnation that our, that our sin deserves. And now he uses a term here that is from the language of the temple. Okay? He's a term that is from the language of the temple. It's kind of a rare word, especially in the New Testament. It's only used twice. But this idea of propitiation. And the idea here, the reason I say it is a righteousness that is acceptable, is that it is a righteousness that God finds acceptable. Now, there is something massively important theologically that Paul is doing here. Let me zoom out for just a second and try to track his flow of thought as the Holy Spirit is inspiring him. Again, we've said there's a problem. The problem is that all of us are sinful and that we need to be righteous. At the beginning of this passage, he immediately presents the remedy to that diagnosis in that God justifies us freely by his grace. But that answer creates another problem. It creates a massive problem. 
and I touched on it earlier when we were, I was talking about justification, is that if God declares Eric Miller righteous when Eric Miller is not actually righteous, how in the world can God be righteous in doing that? You follow me? How can he, how can he do that? How does the judge just let the murderer go? Like he might be having a good day and feeling nice that day, but that, like that's, how's that, how's that work? It works because of this idea of propitiation. And what Paul is going to begin to talk about here is something, it's, it's so foreign to us because we are so at the center of all of our theology that it, it doesn't seem like a big deal, but it's a massively big deal. And that is that when we sinned, okay, when we sinned, the thing that was tainted, the thing that was marred was the glory of God. Are you with me? Go back to chapter 1, verse 23, 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling man. You're like, well, that was just the pagans. No, the religious folks, the Jews, they did the same thing. They just exchanged the glory of God for man-made religion. It's just as pathetic, just as sinful. And so, again, you've heard, you've heard me say this before, but the severity of an offense increases with the dignity of the one offended. If I can go back to the lunch lady example again, I could have been sitting by one of my little buddies in first grade trying not to play with the salt and pepper shakers, and um, I could have called him a name. You know, you're a doofus. That was a word we used back in the late 80s. Um, you're a doofus or, or whatever, and nothing's really going to happen. But if I call the lunch lady a doofus, the offense has increased because of the dignity of the one offended. You understand? On an infinitely greater scale, our sin has offended the most glorious being in all of the universe. It is his glory that has been brought low in our sin. Now, he doesn't actually change. He is still glorious, but it is a question left to all of creation. How can a just, glorious God tolerate this? Well, in order to restore that glory, so to speak, you would need something of equal glory. The only thing equal to the glory of the eternal God is the glory of his Son. And so the Son came, and, and here's where we don't, we don't understand the problem that Paul's created here, but Paul is answering this problem, so I, I, I want us, again, to, to try to get it. Is that the second half of this passage, it's not about, the first part is about Christ dying for us. The second part of this passage here, beginning with this idea of propitiation, is the idea of Christ dying for God. Dying to restore the glory that was marred by our sin is that Jesus Christ, so passionate for the glory of the Father, says, I will go, I will pay this price. And he was the only one that could do it. Because he alone was as glorious as the Father. In fact, John says in his gospel, he says, and the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What else could pay the price for the damage that our sin had done to the glory of God other than the glory of the Son, who is also God. Do you understand? And you're like, well, that's not really a big problem. It's a massive problem. It's just that we don't care about it. It's a massive problem in Paul's theology. It's a massive problem in the universe. 
But we care so little. We care so little about what our sin has done. We care so little about God's glory. And we so minimize our wickedness and our sin. And therefore we minimize what it costs to restore us and to bring us back to the Father. Do you understand? This is where we, we must allow the Bible to create categories for rightly understanding who we are and who God is and who we are in light of him. And brothers and sisters, the Bible does not trifle with our sin. It's not a small thing. And Jesus Christ came and he alone was an acceptable sacrifice. He alone was an acceptable propitiation. That's the, the idea of propitiation means it'd be, it, it's an acceptable sacrifice or a satisfactory sacrifice. This is why the, the word here for propitiation, it's literally the idea of the mercy seat. If you remember the mercy seat in the, on the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies, in the temple, only once a day and only the high priest once a year, I'm sorry, only once a year by the high priest would go in there and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. That's literally the word here for propitiation. Is that Christ is the mercy seat, but he's also the sacrifice and it is his blood that is offered. And this righteousness is something that is acceptable before God <laughs> and it's something that was very costly whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. If you remember what Peter says in his epistle, you were not purchased with perishable things such as silver and gold, but you were purchased with the precious blood of Christ. That's what our sin cost. And this is Paul's flow of thought, and you'll see this clearly here in verse 25. He says this, speaking of the propitiation and his blood, this was to show God's righteousness. Now, do you, do you see the flow of thought? Notice it doesn't say, this was to show God's love. And that's true. He loves us, and God so loved the world that he gave his only son. I mean, that's true, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. Do you understand? This was to show God's righteousness. Why? Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. See, that's the question. How can God do that? How can God say, in, even in the Old Testament to somebody like David, like, like Psalm 103, you do not treat us as our sins deserve. You removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. Because in his divine forbearance, he was being patient, knowing that a propitiation one day was going to come. And it was his idea. That he was going to send the Son to uphold the glory of his own righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And then Paul says it again, verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time. So, and again, I don't think we, if you don't understand what Paul's been saying here and the importance of Jesus upholding the glory of the Father by being an acceptable sacrifice, then the end of verse 26 won't mean anything to you. But if you understand it, it means absolutely everything. And it's an absolutely amazing little phrase that God found a way in Christ to be both just and the justifier. And all of this, while I've said, yes, Christ is dying for the glory of God, the, the implications for us 
and the certainty of our justification and of the righteousness, of the right standing that we have before God, brothers and sisters, it is so firm, it is so certain, it is still good news for us. John Piper says it like this, he says, the foundation of our justification is not flimsy sentimentality. It is the massive rock of God's unassailable righteousness demonstrated in the death and certified in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. As certainly as Christ died and it was acceptable to the Father and we know that it was acceptable because God raised him from the dead, so certainly will God accept everyone, all who simply believe in him. Do you understand? And so we can come to him freely this morning. I gotta, I gotta wrap up here. Um, worship team, you can come up. Do have one more point for those of you that were counting? And the last one is simply this <coughs> review. But it's a righteousness that's apart from the law. It's a righteousness that is by faith. It's a righteousness that is declared and credited. It's a righteousness that is rooted in grace. It's a righteousness that sets us free. It's a righteousness that is acceptable because of Christ's propitiation. It's a righteousness that was costly by his blood. And it's a righteousness that was righteous because God is just and the justifier. And, but if you, if you hear all that, you don't hear this last part, then you gotta hang with me. And it's this. It is a righteousness that is found in Jesus. All these things that we've talked about, and again, I, I know I've thrown a lot at you here this morning. Big words with definitions, and I, it is what it is. But please understand that propitiation, justification, grace, redemption, apart from the law, all of these things are not just floating around out there somewhere and it's like we have to try to grab them or comprehend them. They're found in a person. They're found in Jesus Christ, the God-man, who came. And as we're going to celebrate here in just a few minutes by taking communion, he came, born of a virgin, and he died on a cross, a bloody death, he died the death that you and I deserve, but he was our substitute. He took our place. And for all who simply receive him, who just believe in him, who will come to him, all these things that we talked about this morning, they will be true for you. The question is, will you receive him? Will you come to him by faith? And again, it's, it's okay if even right now, maybe this was the first time you heard about propitiation and justification and imputation. And may, I mean, I, I, again, I understand I went fast, but here, here, here this is that this man, Jesus, who was all these things for us, this is what he said and this is what he still says. Is he says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and I'm humble in heart and you can find rest for your souls. See, the law was holy and righteous and good, but here's the deal. Stone tablets upon which that law was written, they can't shed their blood for you. 
But Christ came not just to do away with the law, but to embody the law, to embody the righteousness that God required. And he lived a sinless, perfect life, and yet he gave it up on a cross for us. And at the end of the day, while all these terms are important, and I don't want us to cast them aside because the Bible says them for a reason and we need to understand them and we need to grow in our knowledge of the truth and have our minds renewed. In the end, what we have is Jesus Christ, our Savior, bloodied, hanging on the cross, but risen again on the third day and one day he is coming back again. Amen? He is coming back again. And all these things are true in him. So stand with me. If you're helping serve communion, please come down.